So we're in Jonah 4. We're going to read it together. But we're talking about an unstoppable gospel. This idea that not even I can stop the gospel work in me. This big idea theologically that once God has started a work in honor, that God will not stop until that work is complete. Can Can you just let that sink in for your own life? That the work that God has started, the gospel work that God has started in your life, that even when I give up and I go, I can't anymore, God will not stop working in you until that work is... It should go... It should be a big exhale and wow, this is not all on me. There's God's Spirit doing this work in me. Of all the books in the Bible, Jonah is the most, as one of the most unexpected and overlooked final chapters. We all get to chapter 3, don't we? we? He preaches, they all get saved, and then we go, what more can there be in chapter 4? Talking about a, a nation that turned to God, etc. And it's like a movie. Sometimes you watch a movie and you go, oh, we, we, we can read the ending. I like doing it. Claire hates it. I love it. Uh, we will sit the whole movie trying to plot the end, like guess the end of the movie. You guess it and you guess it, and then, and then someone has bragging rights going, I told you that's the, that's the crook, or I told you he's gonna, it's going to turn on the last minute, etc., etc. Jonah is a bit like that. It's not quite the ending that you would expect in a story like this, especially that he's a prophet, he's a man of God, etc. And we can look at that chapter together, and he's going to tell us a story that goes on around Jonah that goes to preach successfully to Nineveh. And then in chapter 4, like the whole thing turns on its head and you go, what on earth? If you read this for the very first time in your life, you would be shocked at chapter 4. The problem is most of us have read this. If you're a Christian or Christ-following church, you've read it a few times. You, kind of, you can guess what's happening and you've read it. Or you've been like many of us that read up to chapter 3 and you go, oh, I know the ending. Let's move on. And this morning's your first Sunday. You're going, let's read chapter 4. You're going, oh, there's a chapter 4. There's a chapter 4. Um, the, the, I want to share a little story with my, my, just a personal thing around the gospel completing the work in us. I'm very impatient. So if I start something, before I start it, I can already f- imagine that it's finished. I, I want to use the thing already. So I might have told the story before. Going to Claire's dad's farm for a, a holiday break. I think it was doing, it wasn't sabbatical break. It was just like a week-long holiday or break. And we decided he's got poplar that was cut from the farm. There's some wood that was um, from Claire's original, original family house. And we decided, I want a dining room table that can seat 12 people. We do a lot of stuff at our home like that. And so we decided on, in one week, we're going to build a table. And so day two comes and Anna goes, surely we've done enough now. This thing, it's perfect. Let's just oil it, varnish it, let's get it to the house. Day seven comes and we're still busy sanding it. Sanding it. And I'm going, surely, Dad, this is smooth enough. It's good enough for Anna. Just let's oil it. What's it? What, is it varnish, Marius? Varnish, seal it, varnish it. Um, anyway, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. Um, and, and I remember the impatience that grew day by day. Eventually, I went to bed at night. And I said, Claire, I'm frustrated. I think this thing is fine. Your dad won't let me just varnish the thing and pack it and let's go, to, go home with the thing. And I think we can become like that a bit in our own lives around the gospel work in us. We the table, God is the sander and the master craftsman. We, we submit our lives and God continues shapes and sands all the rough bits. And what I discovered, his, her dad taught me, is after every sanding, when you leave it, what happens in the wood, all the hair stands. I don't know who wood had hair. But like everything after a while stands up and becomes like almost rough, rough edges, etc. And then you have to sand those edges off. And when you've got rid of those edges, guess what? The next morning you wake up, there's more edges that you have to sand off. Anyway, long story short, eventually, Claire's dad, he, I think he would have had another two days of sanding. By then, I, know, I was done. Our, our walk with God is a bit like a tabletop. 
God is constantly sanding and getting rid of the rough edges in our lives. And until the day that Christ returns, you and I will be in the hands of the master craftsman and the gospel. And he won't stop sanding and getting rid of those rough edges until it's perfect. And that day is only coming when Jesus returns. So until then, you and I are that tabletop. And don't be... I often find in church, people are shocked that God is still discovering rough edges in them. And I'm going, when last did you look in the mirror? Not because of your looks, but just do you know who you're talking about? Marriage is amazing for exposing rough edges. Like, it just shows you all your rough edges. Our wives, our husbands have incredible gifts in, in reminding us there's some edges that God could do away with here in your life. But I want to just keep that picture in mind because I want us to, to know and be settled in our hearts that when the, when the rough edges show in your life, like it's showing in Jonah's life this morning, that God is still faithfully going to continue working in you. And there's a good chance that Him exposing the rough edges is out of His love and grace for you, saying, hey, I want to love you and I want to present you to me. Remember that in the bigger scheme of things, Christ is going to be presented a, a, a spotless bride one day. And the idea in Scripture is that everything that's happened before Jesus' return is preparing us for His return. So we're all being prepared for that final coat of varnish or the final day where we're going to be super, super useful. So if you would read, we're just going to read the first four verses. And like I said, um, they literally and really should, if you don't know all of Scripture, they should shock you. So He's preached, they've all repented, and here we have verse 1. But it displeased Jonah. He is a prophet. It is his job to preach the gospel and God's good news and that people should repent. He did that. They repented. And the first sentence in, out of the blocks in chapter 4 is, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The other, another verse says, He burned with anger. He was raging with God in his anger. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, now it's personal because he's using Oh Lord capitals is like um, Yahweh. He's calling God by his first name. It's like I had a, my, my mom had a different name for me when she was angry with me. I knew when she was pleased with me, but I also knew when she was angry with me. When I'm angry with Claire, it's Claire Elizabeth, or I use the second name sometimes. He's doing this with God. He's saying, not just Lord, like in small, he's going Lord, Yahweh. He's calling God by his first name. He says, Oh Lord, is not this what I said was going to happen and yet I'm um, yet in my, in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. How's that? Lord, this is why I ran in the first place. Because I knew that you are like this. And I knew that if I told them about you and I preached that they would repent. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, again, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Challenges his anger. Let's just pray. Well, Jesus, thank you for the scripture. And we, we thank you with in some hesitancy because it's such a, a hard scripture to read and make sense of. And I pray that as we do that this morning, that you would speak to us clearly in Jesus' name. Point number one. Verse by verse, I think this... T- This text does all the hard work for us. We just have to read it slowly and go, hey, what's happening here? Jonah burned with anger. What makes you rage with anger? Just think for a second. It doesn't take long. 
today to think, and you're not allowed to mention the E word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Another version says, Jonah burned. He was burning, raging. The temperature went up. His face went red. He was yelling and shouting at God. Assyria was a great, one of the greatest powers of the world, but also one of the cruelest, most evil cities and nations in the world in the time. It's understandable that Jonah felt this rage. Why would you show grace and mercy to this nation, this evil, evil nation, this cruel nation that is the enemy of God's people? Why would you show mercy? Yet when he finally announces God's coming judgment, they all massively repent and turn towards God. In response, God grants a reprieve And he doesn't destroy the city. I don't think I've ever come to a Sunday morning preach. Got up to preach and say, I hope I really duff it. I really mess up so no one turns to Jesus. And no one worships Jesus better. I don't think I've ever done that. Actually, I know I've never done that. (laughs) Let me just say that. I know I've never done that. I've done the opposite. But imagine Jonah's heart and what was going on in his heart. For him to be uttering God's word and wishing that it bore no fruit. And wishing the opposite, that they don't repent, that they don't respond. It is the complete opposite of what every preacher dreams and prays for every single Sunday. Yet this is where he finds his heart. Can you imagine how evil and how horrible honor's heart must be to get up and preach to you, hoping that you don't hear a word, that you don't change, that you don't worship God more? Can you imagine what kind of sick person does that? And I say sick in, the, in a heart sickness. It should astonish us, this verse. How is this even possible? We quickly believe the story about Assyria and how evil and how how terrible they are as a nation. But it's hard to believe that a nation like that, that's so cruel and so terrible and so anti-God, would turn so quickly, isn't it? Have you ever heard of someone, that you hear someone's going to church or someone's a believer and you go, no, 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 hang on. That's not the same guy that we know. That's not the same guy I saw there or I bumped into over here. Or a week ago, he was doing this or he, she was doing that. Let's just not go he all the time. She was doing that. I can't believe she became a Christ follower. It astonishes us sometimes what God does in people's lives, isn't it? It should be like that. We've got Alpha coming in a few weeks' time. I'm hoping some of you will be astonished at some of your friends that say yes. And then astonished at some of your friends saying, hey, we're going to do it with you. And astonished, hopefully, that one or two of your friends go... I want to know more about Jesus. Isn't that what we live for and dream for in our lives? That God's gospel would astonish us. That it would be, not this astonishment. Not, not, I'm going to invite friends to Alpha and hope none of them come to church. Mm, I don't think that's how it works. That's not how the gospel works. How the book should have ended. Can you imagine what should have happened? There should have been an amazing praise and worship session and, and celebration of what's going on. But this is how it ends. It's not quite how we would plot or plan it. It does show us the power of God's word spoken. That even the, de- the deliverer of it, wishing that it wouldn't bear fruit and change lives, it still did the work. It should give you such incredible confidence as a church. That no matter whether honors had a great day or a bad day, whether honors preaching well or not, as long as honors preaching God's word, God is going to change me and he's going to do a work in me. Our confidence in the church is not in the quality of our preaching the quality of the eloquence of our words or how slick or how clever or how funny our preachers are. We're not here to entertain you as your pastors. We are here to preach God's word because it's in God's word that the power to change us lies. 
So you ask, one of the things you can discover at looking in is our commitment to God's Word, exegetical preaching, preaching what the Word says and sticking to that. Sometimes it's easy to read God's Word and preach it. Sometimes as a pastor, I come to church, I'm going, I don't really want to preach this. Sometimes God's Word calls us to do stuff as leaders that's not comfortable, that it, we have to trust Him that He will bear the fruit in our lives. And it's so confident, or what's the word? Encouraging for me. I come to Sunday and I'm going, what is your word saying? What is your word saying to your people? Just preach that honor. If God can use a donkey in the Old Testament, He can still use you. But there's a serious plot twist here. And I've got friends that remind me often that God used the donkey in the Old Testament. It's very, very encouraging. But yes, the plot twist. What, what God did was so terrible to Jonah that he burned with rage. He had such a hatred. He had such disdain for this nation. Knowing the mercy and goodness of God could not win his heart over. It's a scary thing that there could be areas in our lives that, that we don't want God to change. <laughs> he became almost comfortable in his hatred towards this nation and, and their demise and hoping that they would end up in hell. I hope you rot in hell is something that we would use in modern terminology. Can you imagine an artist doing an amazing, amazing piece and then being asked by all the, um, what do you call it, um, where do you, where do you host, host uh, art galleries? And the, the best art galleries in the world invite you to bring your art and to, to show and to brag and you sulk and you get angry. Or you, you win an incredible tennis match and you walk off and the crowd cheers you and you get angry because they're cheering. No, that's not what we live for. We all want the chair. We want to see the wins. In verse 2, we look at love and justice colliding. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this I said when I was in my country? Remember in the early days he warned, he almost warned God. God, you know what's going to happen if I preach your gospel. Is this not what I said? That is why I made haste to flee. For I knew, listen to these words, that you are a gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What does he just do? He just explains the beautiful heart of God to God. Say, because I know your heart, I knew because of your heart that people would change and they would turn to you. But it seems like there's an ongoing argument here between what, what Jonah desires. He wants justice over the Syrians. He wants them condemned to hell for what they've done to the Jews and to Israel over decades and centuries in, in their war and in their abuse. And he's saying, I want justice. And God comes with mercy and with love. That's the battle going on in Jonah's heart. Is, I want justice. And God says, no, I'm going to give you love. You crying out for justice on your enemy, I'm going to bring love to your enemy and mercy to your enemy. We can associate with that, isn't it? The irony here is that he knew the nature of God, yet he resisted it. It's very, very personal to him. Like I said, he uses the word Yahweh. He's like, it's like when God speaks to me, it's honor. It's not my son or my beloved. It's, when he says honor, he's drawing, he wants my attention. He's, he's trying to grab God's attention. Okay? Hey God, not just any God, Yahweh. I want you to know amongst all the gods, I'm speaking to you. Not the other gods, you the God I'm, I'm mad at. It's almost like a mom getting mad at the kids and singling out one child and saying, you the one that, that I'm mad at. Not all the three brothers and sisters and cousins, you the one that I'm picking on. This is Jonah's attitude towards God. It should scare us, this attitude, doesn't it? Like, hey, this, is, this should make you feel uncomfortable that a human being, a fallen, broken human being, would speak this way to God.
Jonah's many of us. Many of us, when God doesn't deliver in the way that we want, or life doesn't work out the way that we prayed for, our hearts go, yeah. And we wag our finger, we point our finger to God, and this is not what I asked for. This is not what I've been praying for. This is, I knew you were going to do this, but yet you continued. Peter C. Craigie says this, it should be on the board. He knew that God loved Israel and extended His mercy to His chosen people. He felt, in, in the very marrow, he felt it in the very marrow of his bones that this special love of God. So he had this sense of God loves Israel. But then he felt this, that it should not be extended to Gentiles. Above all, to evil Gentiles, such as inhabitants of Nineveh. So he was comfortable with that God loved and showed mercy towards Israel, his people. But as soon as God wanted to show the same mercy, the same steadfastness and forgiveness to someone on the outside, the Gentile or the enemy of Israel, he said, no, 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 that doesn't work for me. The gospel in that little passage there for us is, we forget that we were all Gentiles before God. We, weren't, we are chosen now because of what Christ has done. But if you're not a Jew that grew up in, in Israel and a Jewish family, in the proper, proper bloodline, every single one of us would be a Ninevite before God. And Jonah's going, no, 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 no. I don't want those guys saved. Just save the guys that I know I'm comfortable with. If they're a Hebrew and they're a Jew, they, you can show mercy to them, but don't show mercy to those who do not belong to you. And the gospel for us is that we are in the room. If you're a Christ follower this morning, if you love Christ, you believe in Jesus and you know that He loves you, you're in the room because God did what He did for Nineveh, He did for you. You were the Ninevite. You, were, you and I were not Jonah in this story. You and I were the, we, we weren't the Jews in this story. You and I were the Gentiles. We were the Assyrians. We were the, the evil, false God serving. That's who we were. That's who grace was extended to. It's so easy in church life to become, I'm sure I was the Jew. I was the good Jews that loved God and I was His chosen people. You are now, but you weren't before. Before you were the Ninevites. You were the ones Jonah hated. And the scary truth here is that if religion creeps into your heart, you don't want God's grace extended to those who are not like you or that you don't like something. It's just as simple as that. If religion creeps into your heart, you limit God's grace and mercy towards those who you feel don't deserve God's grace and mercy, who you've placed judgment on, whether it's ethical, moral, sin, whatever that judgment is, that we limit God's atoning grace to others because of a religious, self-righteous heart in us. It's a scary thing for us. It's something I think we have to always check in our own hearts. And not just saving grace, but God's grace. Sometimes in our relationship, something happens and People do stuff that we're disappointed in. And in our hearts, something creeps in. We're going, God, don't show mercy to them. Don't show, don't show your steadfast love to them. Just make them suffer a little bit. We have. That happens easily in our hearts, doesn't it? Well, I'm not the only guy that sometimes feels like that. Hey, God, take your time answering that prayer. Like, it's okay. Like, let them suffer a little bit. It'll be good for them. And when it comes to praying for my salvation and for God's mercy towards me, saying, God, God like yesterday would be good. Like yesterday, God, not tomorrow. Don't make me wait. Jonah too had false idols. Jonah had more in common with the Ninevites that he realized. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. 
What we see here is the bigger issue in Jonah than a theological one. It's actually a heart issue. There's something going on in his heart that he needs to deal with. And God is, in his faithfulness, the gospel saying, Hey Jonah, there's some, there's some rough edges to you. Come on, I want to help you get rid of this, this um, bigotry or, or religious or self-righteous or, 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 or hatred towards the Ninevites. Or your idolatry of the Israel's only get, Israel, Israelites or God's people only gets God. What God is doing here is revealing what is really going on in the heart. He's allowing that heart to be exposed. He's willing to forsake God, Jonah. He's willing to forsake God. Should God not give him what he really wants? That's a hard one. When I say, I won't serve you, Lord, unless you give me this. That thing that I've just mentioned, unless I get that, is your true God. Is, your true, is the true thing that you're worshipping. Or, Lord, if you take this away from me, I will no longer worship you. I will no longer serve you. As soon as you say that, that very thing is your real God. Because you, you prepare to sacrifice your relation with God. You, you, you prepare to rather die than serve God. To have this thing that you don't want to lose. Or the thing that you desperately, desperately need before serving God. And Jonah, obviously, we know from, the, from, I think it was Quint that preached on the Hebrew in him. Jonah's personal political will and desire was more important to him than the mercy and the grace of God. His personal political will was more important than the grace and the mercy of God. My personal needs and wants, the way I want my life to work out and end, is more important than the mercy and grace of God to be flowing through my life. Push to choose between the security of Israel and the loyalty to God to just Israel, Jonah rather chose Israel's security and not God's mercy towards the Ninevites. If Jonah was in the room, none of us would be saved. If Jonah got his will and got into a boat and untarshes and left, none of us Ninevites would be saved. If Christ did not leave heaven and come for us, none of us in the room would be saved. Christ literally had to say yes to his father. Just as Jonah said no, Christ said yes. And we've spoken about that weeks past. It's a weird thing, this sulking of his. I don't know if you watch sport at all, but in sport, we don't like sulkers, do we? Like sulkers, dick, dick back, like whatever. Cristiano Ronaldo would like, if he, if he finishes the match, his team won, and yet no one gave him the ball to score the winning goal, he'd walk off sulking because it, he, didn't get the, he didn't get the attention that he craved. That was more important than his team winning. And that's a bit of what's going on in Jonah. It's more important that I get what I want than God winning or God's grace and mercy winning. And it's such a subtle, subtle, soft thing that creeps into our hearts sometimes. Where we, where we desire that God's grace and mercy will not flow to others because we have an issue or they've done something to us. Or because they're not our favorites or we haven't chosen them as our favorites. We'd rather have them, these guys as our favorites. And that's just human hearts. That's just who we are. It's just, we have biases. We have those things. But they have to continuously be submitted to Scripture and to God. What could be your... If you do this for me, Lord, or if you don't do this for me, Lord, I'm not sure I can follow you. Well, Lord, if you had to take this away from me right now, I'm not sure I'd still be following you. What would be that thing for you? Maybe it's worth this morning just taking a second to go, sure, Lord, if you don't do this for me, I'm not following you. Or, Lord, if you take this for me. And maybe this morning we're going to see the challenge for Jonah is to lay that down before God and say, God... We said, we said we build our life on you. You are our firm foundation. 
not our wants, not our desires, not the things that we love above you. And then lastly, the gospel won't stop until its work in you is done or complete. And the Lord said to him, do do you do well to be angry? That's almost like old school English. Do you do well to be angry? I don't think I've ever asked any of my kids, do you do well to be angry? I wouldn't use, maybe your English teachers amongst us will go, oh no, that's how you should teach your kids how to speak English. Wherever you read the Bible and say, aha, I'm right. Like, have you ever read the Bible and go, oh, I knew I was right. I knew I'm the guy that had all the answers. In an argument with, it, with your husband or your wife or your friend and you, you're discovering or you're discussing something. If you ever read the Bible and you finish with a self-righteous, I was right. You need to go read the Bible again. If the Bible or reading and going to Scripture ever leaves you feeling smug and self-righteous, go read it again. Because I think you've replaced your enemy or try and replace your enemy with yourself and put yourself in your enemy's shoes. Because most likely when you read the Bible, it shows us, it brings us to a place of humility, not of smugness and self-righteousness. The smugness of Jonah saying, I told you so. Can you imagine a human crawling human being with all that hatred pent up that a holy God would even entertain someone saying to you, I told you so. Hey, imagine your kid, like your, your little kid somewhere saying, I told you so, and calling you by your first name. I don't know in your house if that's okay or not, but I grew up, I would not. Ma Afrikaans, Bishop, you know my dad, eh? My dad, I tell my dad, I call my dad as a 10, 12, 13, 18, 20 year old. Call him by his first name and say, I told you so. I better run faster than my dad. Because he's coming at me. Imagine, and this is Jonah's posture towards God. I told you so. And he calls him by his first name. And God says, do you do well to be angry? Jonathan Hyde says this. He says, self-righteousness is the normal human condition. Is the normal human condition. Saying it's not weird for you to be self-righteous. In actual fact, the natural normal, if we left to our own devices, we will be, we are self-righteous. We made, we are, sin causes us to be self-righteous. So that means that you and I, every one of us in this room, needs the gospel to be faithful and complete and help us move out of our self-righteousness towards Christ's righteousness. And it's good for you and I to be challenged every now to go, in what areas of my life am I pointing the finger at God? Am I pointing my finger at God? In what areas of my life am I self-righteous? Where do I feel I deserve mercy and others don't deserve mercy and grace? See, Scripture, if you read the Old to the New Testament, the biggest trouble that the New Testament writers and Jesus had were with the religious Pharisees who knew everything, but self-righteousness dominated their heart. And everything that Christ presented to them in the gospel, and even Paul and Peter later, when, when Christ um, was ascended to heaven, Paul and Peter's biggest battle in the church were people feeling that they were better than others, that they were more righteous than others in the church. And half their scripture and half of their writings is to encourage and to say, do away with your own righteousness, focus on the mercy and the grace of God in your life, and be more merciful and gracious to those who are not like you, who you feel you are smug or above. And then Jonah cries, Salvation only comes from the Lord, yet I am nothing like those awful pagans. 
He's like, in some ways, he's saying, salvation, the one sentence he's saying, salvation only comes by God's mercy. And the next sentence he goes, I am nothing like you pagans. Can you just imagine the stuff going on in his heart? And when we see what Jonah's journey does inwardly, it should challenge every one of us in the room to go, hey, Lord, where am I? Where is the self-righteousness? Not if there are any, where is it? Lord, are there any areas in my life where I'm going, if you touch that, I'm no longer following you. If you take this away, I can't follow you anymore. Or Lord, if you don't do this for me, I'm no longer going to follow you. Or do we submit ourselves gently and humbly before God? Rely on that beautiful sentence where he says, I love that when he says, I know. I know you, Lord. I knew that you were gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relent and relenting from disaster. God, I know you, this God. You see, this is the God that you and I want for ourselves, isn't it? The, the merciful, the loving, the caring, the slow to anger God. But it's also the God that we should desire for our enemies, for those who are not like us, who hurt us. Or when, when Jesus in the New Testament says, love your enemies, the greatest love that we can have for our enemies is the gospel of Christ, is, to, is that we would see them come to faith, that we would see them repent and come to Christ.